Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo, joined tonight by Roar Lions Radio podcast debutante, Andrew Rubin. Andrew, what's going on, man? Not much, Bill. How you doing? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we, I, I've been wanting to have you on for a while. It's just the pesky Matts and Nick are always like, they're, <laughs> they're the ones that I've done this with for so long. And I was like, oh, you know what? One of these days I need to get Andrew on. One, because he's part of the site. And two, because like, a conversation we're going to have at the very end of this podcast when we're talking big picture stuff. Andrew actually brings a very good perspective. But before we get to that, we're here to talk about Penn State's game on Saturday. Nittany Lions losers 21-17 to the sixth-ranked Michigan Wolverines. Nittany Lions falling to 6-4 and four on the season, 3-4 and four in conference play. Ugly game. Um, Andrew, I've been kind of of two minds of this game the one mind is the one where i kind of strip context away and i go a talented but flawed penn state team lost by four points to a team that if it wins out is going to be in the college football play like is not just in the college football playoff like might be the number two team in the country by the time the playoff rolls around on the other hand i look at all the stuff that adds to that context and go, oh man, that was a really winnable game. So just what are kind of your broad general thoughts on this game now that we've had, you know, 28 so odd, some odd hours to kind of digest it? Yeah, I, I guess like building off of what you said, it's more of like a frustrating Penn State loss than a disappointing loss, just because, you know, if they lost by 14 and didn't really show up, that that goes in the bucket for me as like a disappointing loss. I call this one a frustrating one because the team showed up, they competed, but, you know, just situational moments. They did not, you know, play well or make good decisions in the red zone and and left some points on the field with special teams as the fake field goals I'm sure we're going to talk about. So it just goes in the bucket of like that would have been a nice signature win that sort of slipped away with points left on the field and some poor play and critical moments in the game that, that sort of flipped it on its head. Yeah, I I was actually interested uh, in looking at the post-game win expectancy from our pal Bill Connolly yeah. after this game. And I didn't think it was going to be this, but Michigan's post-game win expectancy was 93%. And basically, I saw that this morning was stunned. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's particularly stunning because you think of all the stuff that goes into that. Penn State won. Turnover battle was just about even. Yards gained was just about even. It my assumption is it basically came down to the fact that Penn State had – I don't have the number on top of my head. I'll guess four, five or six trips into the red zone and barely came away with points off of it. But as as I'm having this back and forth, Andrew, I but think – isn't I, a big yeah, part of the postgame win expectancy like is what he calls the scoring opportunities, which is a first yes. down pass, like the opponent's 40 or 35? It, it's something like, it, something like that. I mean, Penn State had – I mean, once it got into scoring opportunity mode, first drive scoring opportunity, uh, they end up opting to kick a field goal. Second drive, we'll talk about that one. Third drive ends in a punt, uh, keep moving down, uh, get into that. Don't forget the fake punt on the first drive that got them into field goal range. Yes, exactly. Move into that, uh, their last drive of the first half, they get down to Michigan's 25, end up with a field goal. Like, it's just a lot of stuff like this. There was that uh, drive. Uh, there, there was a couple of drives in the second half where, again, they get into territory territory, and it's a field goal or they're just not right. able to get something out. And I like I think that's probably the big picture thing of this game, Andrew. And it's probably what, where, like, I probably lean more on the side of I know what this team is. They end up losing to a much better football team. You kind of take them under the chin. But it is just so frustrating that they lost this game almost like I'm not going to say they tried to lose it, but they had so many opportunities to win it. And there were some bad decisions by the coaches. We'll get into some of those. But there was just so much such a lack of execution, particularly by the offense that like, man, you you grin your you, you can't grin your teeth and bear it like that sticks with you. And the thing is, like, like talking about the game in isolation and then taking it out of isolation, frustration is sort of the summary of the season. Because there's a world not that different from reality where this team has one loss and is ranked five or six. I, I mean, you can it's, say that. You could say that, but you could, like, 
there's there's another world where PJ Mustafer doesn't get hurt and Sean Clifford doesn't get hurt. And I'm not saying they win in Columbus, but like they won they lost by nine points in Columbus essentially because of a you know, I'm not going to say fluky play, but a a play that happens once maybe once a season on a fumble yes. recovery with a compromised Sean Clifford. Like they that three game losing streak happened with a more or less compromised Sean Clifford. And the biggest loss of the bunch happened because of a compromised Sean Clifford and an insane play. The games uh, to, against every team not named Ohio State, they lost by a combined nine points. If you had in Ohio State, it's 18 points. And it's like, I can't help but feel like this is a team on one hand, you you take a little bit of solace in knowing how close they are, but at the same time, you kind of lose that solace when you go, that's how close they were, but also think of where they were halfway through that Iowa game, you know? Yeah, I mean, halfway through the Iowa game, you're thinking it's Rose Bowl or college football playoff. You know, it's 17-3 or 17-10 there, and they're rolling along as what were they ranked, three or four at that point, and you know, I, I still think even with a healthy Sean Clifford and PJ Mustafer, they probably dropped the Ohio State game, but it, mm-hmm. it no doubt makes it a more competitive game. And they were competitive as it was. So, you know, I, I can see undefeated, but I think that's a little more unlikely. But yeah, sitting here with one loss is not that different of a world from reality, I think. And, you know, like we'd be having a totally different conversation here tonight. <laughs> yeah, but the conversation we're having is that Penn State is six Again, and four and facing yeah. all sorts of big picture questions. <laughs> yes. We'll get into those big picture questions at the very end, but let's talk about this game. Uh, Andrew, my guess is the people want to hear us talk about one thing in particular, like one moment in particular, which is Penn state's second drive of the game. Penn state torched Michigan for the first half. Like, I don't know if there has been a quarter where Penn state played better than the first quarter of this game against Michigan. They came away with three points despite outgaining Michigan by about 10 million yards. And the biggest reason why is Penn State gets down to the into a, a goal-to-go situation. First and 10, run. Second and 10, incompletion. Third and 10, pass at Theo Johnson. Seven yards, doesn't quite get there. Balls on the two. Fourth and goal from the two. Before we talk about the play itself, were you okay with Penn State kicking there, or did you want them leaving the offense? As In the moment, what did you want? Not as we're looking back. I, I wanted them to go for it, but I would have understood kicking it. A yard closer, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have understood kicking it, but from the two that early in the game, I get it, but mm-hmm. I would have preferred them just leaving the offense on the field and going for it. Like I, I'm, I'm basically there. I mean, how many times have we seen in college football? Not, you, you know, there's the obvious example of when Pitt came to Happy Valley for the final time uh, in their little four-game stretch. But, like, a kick from the hash from a yard or two out is not – like, it's at just such a tricky angle. And it's you an have, awkward kick. Yeah. It's an awkward kick. And, and like – The last time Michigan won State College in 2015, I've thought about this last night, Penn State, I looked it up again, was – down eight, like early in the fourth quarter and on the one or two, and they kicked it in that situation. Went for it. It was like a similar situation just early in the game or late in the game in that case. And, you know, so, so Franklin does have a history that against Michigan. And, you know, with the offensive line struggling to run the ball throughout the year, you know, you don't feel like the one or two yard carries are automatic, which is understandable. Yeah, and if, if memory serves in that 2016 game in Ann Arbor, they were down like 28 to nothing, and James Franklin kicked a big-time morale field goal that got that got panned. And I believe I saw some Michigan fans bringing that up. But fourth and two. There was a lot of laughs in the press box over that one. Oh, yeah, I, I forgot. That was uh, that was during your collegiate days. This is, this is I think, the first time we've done an Onward State and Collegian podcast. So if, if things get <laughs> testy at some point, folks, that that's probably the reason why. But fourth and goal from the two-yard line, lining up to kick. I, at that point, I'm not someone who usually thinks this way, um, but I wanted Penn State to kick it just, uh, and this was probably just because I had the Illinois game seared into my brain. And I don't think we knew at that point that, yeah, by that point, I don't believe we really knew that Kayvon Lee had the juice that he had in this game. So I was, I was totally fine with them kicking it, taking the points. I would have been upset because again, Their two drives were starting on their 25 and getting down to Michigan's 24, starting on their 23, getting down to Michigan's two. And Michigan had a three and out in between those. So 
potential for 14 points walking away with six that's not great but i you know in retrospect yeah in retrospect the way that game changes if it's if penn state has you know 20 points heading into that fourth quarter or 20 points later in the game as opposed to 17 uh after after the field goal by uh by jordan stout off of that fumble i think it probably feels a little bit different neither here nor there what they end up doing instead they run a fake and for one, Penn State, oh God, I don't even know what the hell they were thinking. I, I do know what the hell they were thinking. They were thinking that Michigan was going to pin their ears back, be coming for it. I believe Tyler Warren broke off of the line of scrimmage. And on first watch, I thought he was going out to catch a pass. Instead, he was going out to be a blocker, and he just rips real bad. And they put their kicker in a situation where Jordan Stout has to run past three guys and he's never going to be able to do that. Even if it is the most perfectly placed pass by Rafael Checa, I, 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 even if that worked out, Andrew, I am, I don't think I would have liked the process that led to the results, but fortunately I'm going, history is going to look fine on me anyway, because the results weren't particularly good. (laughs) Yeah. And, and you know, like I said, because if you leave the offense, I mean, they couldn't have predicted this happening. But so one, they don't get it. And two, Michigan then takes over what, like the 25 or 30, where if you leave the offense on the field, if you don't get it now, they're at the one or two, mm-hmm. then backed up and you probably get good field position again, your next drive. So not only do you not get the three points by virtue of it being a complete disaster, it could have been a scoop and score touchdown. I was close to that. Yeah. And, you know, you also got them out of the pickle, too, by missing it and giving them decent field position. Yeah, it it was it turned into a Murphy's Law moment, like everything just went wrong for Penn State in that situation. And I think that's probably why I'm so upset with it in retrospect, like even if. You know, Franklin said after the game, and, and he wasn't wrong when he said this, he said after the game, something to the extent of you have to, you know, it's about those little margins or whatever like that. Pass was a little bit behind Jordan, which puts him in a situation. Well, like again, not was a game there either way. <laughs> exactly, but that pass could have been thrown on the numbers. You could have, you know, you could have had Christian Veyu there as the holder, someone a little bit more comfortable throwing a pass, and you could have had Jake Pinnaker who played safety in high school and was a pretty good athlete back there catching the football. It's just you're putting so much stress on there, and I'm always this is my complaint with and when they would run the uh, the Tommy Stevens package. This is my complaint when they would run. Or not even the Tommy Stevens package, just any package where like it's taking off players who are like trained or, or yeah. know how to get X amount of yards and replacing them with players who don't. You're just making your job harder on yourself. And like, like you mentioned, Andrew, yeah, maybe they get stuffed, but if they get stuffed, Michigan was not going 98 yards on this defense in that portion of the game. Like it just it feels like a mistake. It is a mistake that they have more than enough time to overcome, but it just feels like the kind of thing that as people are voicing their frustrations about James Franklin right now, it's just such an easy target for everyone. Oh, for sure. And and like in these low scoring games, like as much as, you know, it's a little thing, every little thing matters. Like if it's a shootout, you can get three points back a lot easier than a game that ends in the Mm twenties. And like you, you look now, and Penn State's down to 66th in offensive SP+. Plus. Like, I, I hate to say it because I hate sounding like I want the team playing cowardly, but you have to take points anytime you're in a position to get it. And yeah, seven's more than three. Like, we're adults. We all know this. But, like, when you are literally pushing the bottom half of college football, no, you are in the bottom half of a. Uh, yeah, college football. thirty FBS teams. Yeah, you are one spot below the bottom half of college football, especially against a defense that is fifth in defensive SP plus. You have to take points wherever you can get them. I, I don't like as I'm thinking back on the game again, Andrew. More than enough time to overcome it, but I just can't stop. It's not even in a like James Franklin bad game managing thing. I just like it's just so frustrating that that's the thing we're pointing to. Yeah, right. Like, because if they if they ran the ball and didn't get it, sucks. Whatever. But but you're not. It's not like a target then on James Franklin's back that is just another frustration amongst the fan base. Yeah, and you 
God, I, I, I hate this man. Like, I, I just hate everything. I hate that this is the thing that we spend time, that we have to, we have to spend time talking about this compared to talking about some of the other stuff that happened in this football game. So let's just dive right into the other stuff that happened in this football game. We'll start by talking about Penn State's defense. I, you, you look at what Michigan was able to get in this game, 361 yards of total offense, 7.5 yards per pass, 217 total, 3.5 yards per rush, 144 total. You told me that coming into the game, Andrew, if you told me that Hassan Haskins was going to average something like four yards, he averaged five yards a carry on 31 carries and nobody else gave them anything on the ground and Haskins didn't score and his long was 17, I would have bet money Penn State wins this game by two scores. I thought Penn State's defense was exceptional in this one. Oh, I, I agree. It's just a couple of backbreaking moments that, that swing the game as far as the defense goes. You know, one one that play that looms really large is the third and 13 or third and 14 on Michigan scoring drive. They throw that little you know screen pass behind a Penn State blitz. Brand Smith could have made a tackle. It would have been a bit of a tough play, but couldn't make it. Turns into a first down. Michigan gets a touchdown out of it. And then there hadn't been a really long explosive play all day. And then, you know, as something else that's been a frustration of the fan base through, for years has been, you know, Brent Pry defensive having really good games for 50, 55 minutes and then falling apart in those have-to-have-it moments. And so Michigan then gets what was probably their longest play of the day on the touchdown that wins the game and sort of a coverage bust as I think Joey Porter and somebody else collided in coverage, if I'm remembering that correctly. And yeah, so really, it was a, it was a Joey Porter Jr. and Kalen King. Who, like Kalen King, I thought he deserved it. Like I completely understand people if they are frustrated that a true freshman was out there and was like one of the men who were thrown into conflict in that situation. But I thought he deserved it. I thought he played a, an exceptional football game, and it's just unfortunate that that's yeah. kind of going to be the lasting image of it for him. Oh, for sure. And, and you know, for a true freshman playing corner, he's been good across the season. I think it's a shame. I mean, it wasn't Joey Porter's best day. I think he was beat for both of the first two touchdowns. Um, and, you know, he's had a really nice season, and it just, you know, it happens. But but really, it was a, you know, phenomenal game defensively, except for those two or three big plays. And then I think a little bit in the second half where Haskins and Edwards, to an extent, got a lot of their yards was the Penn State linebackers were not able to disrupt the Michigan lead blocker enough. Like, there was a lot of times – Michigan had a pulling offensive lineman that they got in front of the running back and led him a ways downfield before somebody was able to get a hand on the running back clean. And, and they, they just weren't able to disrupt that lead block and kept a couple of drives alive longer than it should have been. Runs that were should have been two, three, four yards were 10, 12 yards, which I think was a frustration that some people picked up on. Yeah, and Haskins, again, on the day, 17 yards was his long. The only reason that he gained so many yards was that they just kept giving it to him. And I was a little bit worried that this was going to be, you know, if you watch the NFL, this is something that the Titans do a lot with Derrick Henry when, you know, obviously he's out now. But first quarter, uh, he's not really getting much of anything. Second quarter, okay, a little something. Then third quarter, fourth quarter, he's just wearing that defense down so much that he's starting to break off big ones. And I didn't think Haskins was quite doing that, but I think you're completely right. Like, they did a good job of bottling him up to the extent that when he was able to get into that second level of Penn State's defense, when he was able to get into that third level of Penn State's defense, he was taken down. You still want to be able to get him down a little bit sooner. But basically, I just wanted to see them in one or two. I, I thought he was actually most troublesome as a pass catcher. Five catches, 45 yards. It seemed like Michigan's passing offense was two plays. Uh, one mesh route where they just dumped it off to somebody, they turn up field, get ahead of steam, or two, just dump it off to Haskins as kind of your safety valve, and he gets a little ahead of steam and some blockers. And to that extent, I thought Penn State's defense played well. You mentioned the two, the two plays I was going to mention, uh, just that I dog-eared, dog-eared here, particularly that third and 13, where they just threw, like, Josh Gaddis nailed that play play call. Third and 13, they knew a blitz was coming. They threw a screen right into the blitz. 
should have taken him down. It, I, I do think it's probably a completely different game. If they, I literally think that one play probably changed the game like more than any. I mean, that drive is when the Michigan offense arrived in the game. Like I'm looking right. back on the first quarter stats now. Michigan in the first quarter had 15 yards on six plays with zero first downs. Yeah, only three minutes of possession, and that drive in the second quarter is sort of when the Michigan offense arrived in the football game. And they set they set there delays that you know another five ten minutes in the ball game. And a really good way to settle down is to find yourself in a third and thirteen and be able to convert that when you know that wasn't going to be a three and out, but that would have been a six play five plays for your offense before you end up having to punt it away. Uh, on the day, Michigan six for fifteen on third down. So Penn State's defense did a nice job of getting off of the field. Uh, I, I, I generally think that if you're talking about this game, Andrew, it's kind of a thing that we have spoken about, about Penn State's losses this season, which is against Iowa, they allowed 23 points. You should be able to win a football game when the other team scores 23 points. And, and you know, again, that's 23 points when you're, best one maybe your top two or three important defensive player ends up getting hurt illinois scored i'm not clicking on the box score uh because i refuse to do that but it was something like 16 points in regulation you should be able to win that game and then michigan 21 points with a million scoring opportunities you should be able to win that game that's probably more than anywhere else where i'm frustrated this season is that this defense keeps answering the call in this game. They kept answering the call and it just, they never got that last little bit of support that they needed for Penn state to get over the top. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to compare this team to the 2015 team. Cause I think this team's way better, but a lot of the same feelings there with that, as far as a really good defense going to waste. And, well, and I that think, was the year like Zettel Johnson mm-hmm. and Nassib were like a really, really good defensive line. And, you know, yeah, and and I, great defense was wasted. And you're completely right. I I would say the only difference is that it made sense why that offense wasn't particularly good. Uh, they right. had an they had an offensive coordinator who just played a role in getting a separate head coach fired a couple of hours <laughs> ago. Uh, they had a quarterback who just like very awkward fit in what in the entire ecosystem. They had an offensive line that it made sense that it was very bad and its two best skill position players were true freshman Saquon Barkley and I think redshirt freshman Deshaun Hamilton. So like Right. Mike Sicky yeah. not woken up yet. The, yeah. Chris, Chris Godwin a bit of weird year that year. Yeah. So like I think it is it it, it made sense in retrospect why that offense wasn't right. great. But let's move to the other side of the football here, which is Penn State's offense. Um I, I think you probably agree with me. They have a good offensive coordinator, but I I think it says a lot, and I'm trying not to like pick my words very carefully here. It says a lot about the last few years and the personnel that they have in this offense that they are in the position that they are. Th- does that make sense? Yeah, that we were potentially too hard on Ricky Ronnie and Kirk Scirocco over the last three, four seasons. Is that and- what you're getting at? Uh, oh, there's a little bit of that, and there's a little bit of the way the ways they have gotten talent into this program, uh, the ways that they have recruited. I think that we have kind of collectively said, "Well, they're doing this, they're doing that. Their recruiting classes have been solid, generally pretty good. You have you have an issue or two in those recruiting classes that you can't." point out, I mean, the obvious one, I think when you look at the big picture of this offense is not a, a C-do, um, having a heart issue right away, like before he ever plays a game and that's it. Yeah. And that's your starting left tackle, when they, right? When they yeah. scan all the freshmen, when they got, and it wasn't just him, it was Jordan Minor and I think somebody else in that class too. Well, when the Jordan, freshmen get scanned after they get on campus had heart issues. Yeah. So it's stuff like that. It, it's stuff like you... Justin Shorter and Ricky Slade not working out. Although, I yeah. mean, Slade, it didn't end up mattering so much because Journey did. But Shorter being Jahan Dotson good two years ago would have made a big difference. 
Yeah, you look at uh, losing out on the five-star wide receiver who's from 70 miles away from campus. You look at how you've recruited quarterbacks. You look and you how you've recruited quarterbacks and how quarterback recruiting you, you recruit. Let me say it. You recruit quarterbacks and you have had, you know, you want to talk about three offensive coordinators in however many years, three quarterbacks coaches in however many years installing their new systems. I think there has just been so much rocking the boat, so much change, so much this offensive coordinator identifies these guys that he wants. He's out. This offensive line coach identifies the guys he wants. He's out. This wide receiver coach, Bob, like all that stuff. We always say that Penn State, you want your your coaches to go get coordinator jobs. I think in a way we're seeing some of that, or you want your coordinators to go at head coaching jobs too. I think we're starting to see some of the chickens come to roost with all of that. Yeah, I mean, receiver was the hardest one where they had four coaches in four years there. Yeah. And that was, and, and I think like going back to recruiting as far as like every class, like having an issue here or there, I think another thing, and this is sort of off topic, but is it feels like the, like over the last four or five cycles, and that's changed this year, you know, for the 2022 class, but the positions Penn State's recruited best at are not like the premium positions that make the biggest difference between having a good unit and a great unit. They've recruited really well at running back, even though the unit's not living up to it. Tight end, another one that's underperforming. And then linebacker, too, are probably the three best position groups as far as recruiting goes. And those are position groups where, as far as being difference makers, the difference they make in the game between being good and elite units, I think, is the smallest. Like, you'd rather have elite wide receivers and good running backs than elite running backs and good receivers is trying to is the point I'm trying to make. Or and like on defense, you'd rather have an elite secondary and good linebackers than vice versa. Yeah. Or, and if you're going to have an elite secondary, like, you know, I, I would run through a, I would run through hell in a gasoline suit for, uh, for Jair Brown and Jaquan Brisker. But like, if your two best players are your safeties, that's not necessarily a great thing because yeah, you're taking stuff away underneath, but also guys are getting eight, nine yards before they're getting up to them. So it's just like, you're right. And we'll get into some of that big picture stuff, but when we're just talking about Penn state's offense. You look on the offensive line, you look at the, I mean, the running back room, you mentioned Ricky Slayton. I think that's actually a really interesting point. Ricky Slayton, Devin Ford are probably the two guys out of high school who seemed like they had the, uh, makeup to be legitimate number one running backs. And I think all year Penn state has kind of, that, that's been the thing Penn state's missed. I think they have a lot of change of pace guys, a lot of right. thunder to lightning, a lot of lightning to thunder, but they lack that one dude. What I will say, Andrew is in this game, this was for me, Kayvon Lee's best game of the season, 28 carries 88 yards yeah. against a Michigan defense. That is very good against the run. Like I thought, I think if that Kayvon Lee and that offensive line blocking for Kayvon Lee, you know, offensive line wasn't great, but I thought they were a little bit better in run blocking this week, showed up all season long. That's another one of those little things that you look at Iowa, you look at Illinois, you look at Michigan. A potential difference is if Penn State could run the ball literally at all in those, especially those first two games I mentioned. They could win those football games, even with a compromised Sean Clifford and Taquan Roberson in their quarterback. Oh, I think so. And I think it was Kevon Lee's best game since Michigan last year, which was sort of his initial yep. coming out party, I think. And and one thing that, you know, I think the run blocking all year has been pretty atrocious. I don't think there's any getting around that. And a frustration would be like a day where they finally get not great push, but some push against a decent front seven. The pass protection, which had been fine, not horrible, completely fell apart. And, and you know, you expect – you know, they weren't going to hold a job in Hutchinson out completely and Ross too. They were going to get pressure on Sean Clifford, but that was, I think, a lot worse than expectation. Yeah, I mean, you as far as pass pro goes. No, you're 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 110 correct. I mean, I think that I think that Penn State's offensive line it didn't get car. Which was that the funny thing is that like you go back and watch some of that game, and I thought Michigan's front placed more of an emphasis on trying to confuse Penn State than most of the fronts that they have played this season. A lot of we're going to have one or two guys down. We're going to have six or seven guys standing up. We're all like it's 
you, you know, you go back and you there was a lot of times it looked like they bring the house and did. Yeah. You, you actually, you actually go and, you know, their uh, defense coordinator, uh, Mike McDonald play, was with the Baltimore Ravens. You can go and watch them. You can watch Michigan and then you can go watch how Odafe Owe is being used in Baltimore. And you can see how there are some similarities in just, we're going to put, move these chess pieces around everywhere. And it's very funny because like Penn State's run blocking was good, go, good enough in spite of that. Uh, the one thing I will say about Lee, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, I think that he, there were some games earlier this season. And my guess is it stems from the fact that he had some fumble issues at the very beginning of the year where he'd get the ball and he'd kind of just wait for something to happen and then waiting for something to happen nothing ended up happening. I thought the thing that he did best in this game was he got the ball and he just ran and he isn't quite at a point where he seems comfortable fully throwing his size and weight around. But I think he did a better job than he has been doing at taking the football and saying, I'm just going to go with this and see what happens. Yeah, no, I I totally agree with that. And the only real Kevon Lee complaints I have from Saturday are like there was two or three carries that, you know, I don't remember exactly when they were, where he could have bounced it and made a different cut for eight, 10 yards. And I think just his attitude was downhill no matter what on Saturday. And, and it, it left yards on the table that were, you know, two yards carries that could have been 10. And, and there was two or three of those. You probably remember, I, you know, the situations I'm yeah. talking about where there were gaps there and he just sort of lowered his shoulder into the pile. Yeah, but but also the same you know, time. That was my only complaint really with him. And the pass no, block sure. was not good. But as well, as <laughs> We'll get into that. Uh, I Well, the thing with him is that, like, with just how this season has gone, I'm, like, fine with him not going, all right, I'm going to try and bounce this one. Like, I like I would take a guaranteed three or four yards and either stay on schedule or stay j- get just off, slightly off schedule. Because I think that's just, like, beyond what Kayvon Lee is best at, I think that's just going to be his best use for Penn State going forward because I just think he – You know, he has some speed about him, but I want him using his physicality above all else. Uh, What I will say is that with Noah Kane apparently being banished to the Shadow Realm or whatever went on with him there, um, I really don't think I want to see too terribly much more of John Lovett this season. I just think that he... You know, there's such a hard ceiling. Yeah, he. but as a runner, you know, four carries for 17 yards, 10 of those came on one carry. Uh, as a pass catcher, some drops, some looking lost in uh, as a receiver and as a blocker. Like, I, I'm just at a point where if we're going to watch Penn State play football, I'm going to feel best with Kayvon Wee back there 95% of the time. Yeah, assuming Noah Kane can't get back to 2019, Noah Kane, yeah. Right which, there, so. which I, I think we have enough of a sample size to say that is probably not. Happening. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, listen, Kayvon, we honestly shout out to him. Like, it's been a really tough season for him. Uh, he hasn't quite looked like the guy that we thought he's gonna be. I, when we go back to that lack of a number one running back, I think he is probably the guy most impacted by that because if you have. If you can bring in Kayvon Lee to go against a defense that has been run ragged by a back who just keeps breaking big ones, I think you are going to see a more effective version of him, even if it's in a lesser capacity. We will hopefully see that for him next year. Um, Hopefully next year we will also see a passing game that is, um, how, how do I want to phrase this? That I'm not terrified when the quarterback drops back. Uh, Sean Clifford was sacked seven times. And Andrew, you said something that has been on my mind all, all day, which is you're not keeping Aiden Hutchinson and David Ojabo out of the backfield. They are, you know, if you're listing the top five defensive linemen in college football, Hutchinson is definitely in it. Ojabo is I don't know if he's there, but he is definitely getting an honorable mention nod at the bare minimum. Yeah, I, I mean, think, probably the best yeah. DN pair in the country. Like, yes, yes, I I absolutely think you're you're putting two guys out there. There, like Hutchinson's physicality, Ojabo's explosiveness, like it's a perfect complement for one another. I think if you, t- I think them getting five sacks, I probably wasn't happy. I probably would have expected that before the game. Like if you told me the five sacks, I probably would have gone, yeah, okay, that sounds about right. The amount of time, though, 
that they spent in the backfield hitting Sean Clifford, rushing Sean Clifford, all of that beyond what they got in their sack total. Like, I, I don't think there's anything to say other than them and really all of Michigan's defense whenever they brought dudes. Like, the only word for it is unacceptable. Yeah, I mean, Sean Clifford's going to be taking ibuprofen like they're M&Ms all week. I mean, he he yeah. got beat up. And and one thing, while we're on this, too, as far as, like, the sacks, there was two or three sacks that were, like, linebacker blitzes that were a little delayed that came up the middle, and, and people were toasting the running backs for them. And not completely unfair, and this is speculation a little bit, but I, I'm going to guess the running backs were hammered home with all week. If you don't see immediate pressure up the middle – bail to help with one of the ends because if there was not an immediate blitz between the guards, love it or, or Lee was, was jumping over to help with one of the defensive ends right away. Yeah. So that, that's, that's all right. And, and we, uh, you know, I dropped it into, uh, dropped it into our slack and we took notice of it, but on that last play, which we'll, we'll talk about that too momentarily. Uh, if you go back and you watch it, Michigan brings uh, a blitzer, uh, from their linebacker core, shoots right in between Bryce Efter and Caden Wallace. And you see Kayvon Lee gets right up there and is helping with the middle of the line. Dude just has a free rush at Sean Clifford. Like, I think everything just see- – on that play, what ended up happening, I believe it was two, two dudes uh, from Michigan being blocked by three guys, Kayvon Lee, Juice Scruggs and Bryce Effner, left guard. Ju- uh, who's it? What Eric Wilson, left guard, not blocking anyone, and a free rusher coming in at Clifford. With the caveat that yes, Michigan does a good job at disguising that stuff. Like I think those are the biggest issues that we have watching Penn State's offensive line, watching how they're running backs block, all that stuff. You can just confuse them so easily, and when you are not confusing them you are just able to blow right by them with speed, with physicality, with whatever you use. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt about it on that. And one stat that um, I got here, the PSU Analytics account on Twitter has it. So Michigan yesterday, seven sacks, five tackle for loss. So that's 12, 12 um, you know, plays that were stopped behind the line of scrimmage. In the four games prior against Northwestern, Nebraska, Nebraska Michigan State, Indiana, they only had 21 total. So over, you know, they're averaging about five a game and then hit 12 a game yesterday. Yeah, God, they they had they had one follow the PSU analytics account. I don't know if they listen to this podcast, but one of my favorite accounts uh, out there does a really good job adding some depth to the conversation out there about Penn State football. Go ahead and do that. Uh, But there was there was a tweet. uh, Find folks over at the bucket problem. You heard Ace and Bender on the pod. giving a little preview of Michigan tweeted out Sean Clifford deserves military medals for that game. Couldn't quite get the dub, but I don't remember the last time I saw a QB take that kind of beating and keep making big plays. Let's talk about Sean Clifford's game. Andrew, I thought he, I don't, don't want to sit here and say he was great or anything like that. I think there were, there were a few times where he was his own worst enemy, just in terms of, you know, stepping into the pocket when, Michigan was bringing surprise and like, you know, maybe there's only something you could do about that. There were some times where we saw him have that little bad habit that he can sometimes have where he's so eager to make a play that he holds onto the ball a little bit long. But I think that he had a nice football, you know, 23 for 43, 205 yards, 4.8 yards per attempt. Not great. One touchdown, 16 carries, 16 yards. Of course, there's seven sacks factored into that. I thought he did fine, but I also thought he looked exponentially better in that first quarter when he was using his legs a little bit more. And I think it's, this is probably the biggest takeaway of Sean Clifford's season in general for me. When he loses the ability to do stuff with his legs, it's like he gets 20% worse at throwing the football. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think he, you know, he bowed and there's no, like, I think, you know, have the fine or decent game, like you're saying is fair. And, and, you know, he competed and I think, you know, like you're saying, the first quarter was probably his best, too, because he just wasn't beat up yet. He, you know, he couldn't run. He definitely had pain. I'll be yeah. shocked if he'd have pain throughout his body, which affects your throwing, affects your running. It just, you know, made him a worse football player as the day went along, which 
given the shots he was taking every two, three downs is understandable. So let's, uh, let's talk about the end of that game. Uh, Penn State gets the ball. 14-14 football game. Get the ball in Michigan 16. Clifford runs. Clifford in completion. Clifford in completion. Field goal by Jordan Stout. Penn State goes up 17-14. to 14. Ensuing drive. Michigan scores 21-17. This is Penn State's drive after it gets to 21-17. First and 10. Incomplete pass to Cam Sullivan Brown. Second and 10. Complete pass. Malik Mega, who, who I would like to start seeing a whole heck of a lot more of eight yards. Yeah. Third and two. Uh, throws to Jahan Dotson. Uh, you know, Dotson would have caught it if not for the fact that, you know, Clifford, you know, for, for better or worse, throws a hospital ball in that situation and he just gets <laughs> lit up, has to come off the field really shaken up. Fourth and two, Michigan brings that little bit of heat. Clifford kind of throws up a prayer to Cam Sullivan. Brown doesn't come down. I have a take on these last, those last two plays in particular, Andrew. I, th- I think I mentioned them to you in the Slack. I will let you go first. What were your general thoughts on that situation? I mean, the, the, the other routes, like looking at the, the camera angle, the spider cam, whatever they call it, behind Clifford, it's clear the other routes weren't there. But, but settling on a fade to a receiver who has frankly been – not a factor throughout most of his Penn State career is really disappointing with, you know, if they do that to Jahan Dotson, you know, the fade such a low percentage throw and tight coverage. If they do it to Dotson, I'm not a fan, but I get it there. You know, they they have to give him better options to come up with, whether it's, you know, Kevon Lee on a screen for a quick dump down, which didn't work against Iowa, but, you know, could work in other situations. And, it just felt like that being your sort of bailout throw if those crossing routes were covered was a bad, bad option. Yeah, and like you – Mega you getting blown up like we talked about in Slack. Boy, I – what is it? You can like be physical with a wide receiver a few yards from the line of scrimmage. Right, right? I think you have five yards, yeah. Five yards. I I think if Sean throws it to Malik Mega, that drive might have gone on a little while longer because that was just – he, he didn't get yeah, if the physical. ball's on the way when he hits him. It's pi for sure. But yeah, but but I'm also, not like, sure what the call is if he gets hit and then you throw it there. Like, oh, I was throwing it anyway. Yeah, but I'm not sure was, how that goes. If you can go back and find that clip, listener, please go back and do that because Mega got like it looked like he was running across the middle and he was met by Ray Lewis. Like it was real bad. But yeah, they go to Cam Sullivan Brown. Uh, Clifford was in a situation with how Michigan brought its pressure where he just had to get the ball out. And that was the, you know, that was kind of, I think, the prayer in that situation. I think if he gets a little bit more time, maybe he's able to figure something else out. But he just, he had no time, which is like part of the issue with that play. And like, candidly, I think that's kind of been missing from the discourse around it. Like, even with all the stuff that was not great about it, neither here nor there. But the bigger concern that I had was the play before it third and two 256 left. You have, I think all you have all three of your timeouts. It's on your 33 yard line. You've been getting four yards a pop when you run it with Kayvon. We all four and a half yards a pop when you run it with Kayvon. We all day in that situation. I just want you to put it in his gut and put yourselves in a situation where even if he doesn't get it, if he just picks up a yard, it's fourth and one. You can do something where you're putting Sean Clifford under center and he's sneaking it. You can go with the Tyler Warren hell package, which I don't love, but in that situation, like battle of wills, why not try it? You're not putting yourself in a situation. And again, this is the only real complaint that I have. Like that fourth down play call, I didn't love it. I think they let themselves down on third down and made themselves be in a situation where they had to do something on fourth down that they might not have been comfortable doing. I, like, And I also just think there's the issue of Parker Washington outside of that one big one that he broke for 44 yards. I think you know Michigan just did an okay job on him all day. The tight ends didn't really get a ton going in the yeah, back. Like, well, the, the first drive of the game was like third and 18, and they, they hit him for that conversion that got the field goal, kept the field goal drive alive yep. to open the game. So there's two yeah. big plays there. 
Yeah. So I like didn't I think, cut you off there. Sorry. No, you're you're fine. Like I think it's I think it's very easy to go. Why don't you go to Parker Washington? Why don't you go to Theo Johnson? Why are you going to Cam Sullivan Brown? And like I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong, but I think within the context of that particular play, like as much as I hate to say it, Andrew, you look at everything else that happened. Hucking it up to Cam Sullivan Brown or whomever is that outside receiver and hoping they can do something is probably your best bet. When it came to the time to throw the ball, yeah, because everybody else was across the middle in traffic. That was sort of the bailout, nothing's there, throw it up option. Yeah, and it's – and as a result, Penn State's now in a situation – the Penn State's now in a situation where uh, six and four lost that football game. Uh, Last thing I want to mention before we hand out some game balls and talk big picture stuff, offensive line, it's very funny. I've been concerned about the tackles. Uh, I don't think I am any more or less concerned just because of the caliber of the ends that they were going up against. But I thought, yeah, like, that's I'll pro- say one notch more concerned. I thought it was going to go that's poorly. Not, that's that was a step worse poorer. Yeah, I think that's fair. I I think that I think that if you look left to right, everyone. Like Rashid Walker, I think is probably going to end up going to the like not reporting this. I think he's probably just going to go to the NFL because he looks the part. And as we've seen with Donovan Smith, looking the part and being the part aren't necessarily the same thing. But you look at the rest of this line, man, and like I want to see someone new in basically every single position, even if that means moving Caden Wallace to guard outside of Juice Scruggs next season. Because like I just. It feels dire, and we'll get into the big picture stuff, but I think that it's really hard to take any amount of optimism from anything we've seen out of the offensive line this season. Yeah, I mean, unless they get like, you know, you expect Landon Tangwall to step in and start next year. I mean, who knows how he's been developing behind the scenes. We haven't seen him in game. Um, but if he, you know, sort of matches up to his recruiting ranking and they're, if they're able to slide Caden Wallace inside, cause I think he could be a decent guard. I don't think he has the foot speed to play tackle so much. Um, and then, you know, you're hoping for like two impact transfers and then you could probably have hope for the offensive line going the next fall, but yeah. otherwise, it's gonna and, be... and, and it's worth mentioning. So Liam warmly was penciled in as one of the starters at guard, but yeah. he, uh, but he got hurt before the season. So like they are down to a backup, but even at the same time, like I, as much, I know they like Salim warmly. I think liking Salim warmly and Salim warmly changing the entire com- complexion of this offensive line are two completely different things. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that. And, and, you know, it, it's going to be, they're going to like, I think the most predictable off season narrative of all time is going to be the offensive line. <laughs> like, cause like the NFL, the media gets to see practice. The meet, the offseason narrative can't be like completely detached from reality. But with college football, like programs like 100% control the narrative until kickoff. Oh yeah. Oh. So, yeah. so the spring narrative like is a thousand percent going to be that offensive linemen are stepping up and probably that like Malik Mega is stepping up. So they have three good receivers. Blah blah blah. It, but you know, I, I don't think anybody's going to believe a word of it until they go and prove it at Purdue in the first game next year or not. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, they have that, uh, they're bringing in, you know, I'm probably, I'm a little hesitant to trust Harvard transfers with just how things have gone for Eric Wilson, which, you know, I don't think is necessarily his fault. This is his first football in however many years, uh, but they have the other Harvard transfer, uh, Spencer Roland, uh, coming in again, it's a similar situation. I'm not putting too terribly much stock in him, but Hey, they've had some other good stuff. Step up playing in the Ivy league is not the big 10. Right. And playing in, not playing a football game in the Ivy league for however long was not the big 10. Like it amplified it for Wilson. It's, you know, Roland might have a slightly easier transition because I'm pretty sure he played football this year. Uh, but yeah, well it's not great. Uh, let's hand out some game balls. Uh, Andrew, one game ball on the offense, one game ball on the defense. Um, I'm going to be – I guess I'll go Kevon Lee, even though, like, I'd go Jahan Dotson if it just wasn't for the sake of I'm sure he's been the game ball like eight times this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yes. Just to mix it up, I'll go Kevon Lee. And what about on defense? Um, AK. 
Yeah, God, he's good. <laughs> I, 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 if they I, don't get him, I don't even want to think about what we're talking about right now. Absolutely not. Uh, I, I will do the same. I will go with Kayvon Lee, and then I will give it to Jesse Lukita, who I thought yeah. – I, I think that the surprise of the season above anything else is that Jesse Lukita, in his first year playing a different position – is like a legitimate guy who I think could get drafted. Like he's he's been exceptional, yeah. and he he was very. There was one, uh, I believe it was like a fourth and one. It was a third and short, something like that, where Michigan tries running it off their right tackle, and they have three blockers, and Lukita just gets in there and eats up every single one of them and frees up. I think Ellis Brooks to come in and make a tackle on Hassan Haskins. It was like the kind of thing that you expect a four or five year, whatever he is guy to be able to do, but you expect a four or five year guy to be able to do that when they played the whole position, that position the entire time. So all yeah. shouts to Jesse Lukita. Cause like, I, I don't know. He, had a, he had a tough year last year to he's, say the least. It's he like, he's and Ellis very, Brooks too's been a lot there. Like the two of them was a pair in the box awesome. last year, had a tough time and they've both been better. Yeah. And I think they could both come back next season, but Brooks, Brooks, I would be a little bit surprised if he goes to the NFL just cause he's like, while he is a good player, there aren't exactly a ton of 6'1", 241 linebackers who aren't particularly agile. and Very you know, B-Bell yeah. to it as a prospect. Yeah, but like Brandon's – when you look at who this defense is losing, Brandon Smith, Arnold Ebiketh, he possibly both safety, blah, blah, blah. Like, it's going to be tough. Now, well, that, that's for a little bit farther down the road. Let's do some other big picture talking. Uh, Andrew, it seems like we are at a point – where Penn State fans are getting a little bit louder than normal about the stuff with James Franklin needing to either A, be fired, which I think even, you know, they can lose to Rutgers by 50. They could lose to Michigan State by 100. I don't think James Franklin is getting fired. Financially, that's just way too big of a thing to have to lift off of your shoulders. But I think there are a lot of Penn State fans who will be totally fine if after this season, James Franklin says, I've maxed out what I think I can do here. I'm going to head to USC. I'm going to head to LSU. Generally, when you sit and you think of where this Penn State team is right now, both on this season and in the big picture, how are you feeling on James Franklin as the guy to lead Penn State going forward? I still think he can get Penn State back to the run he sort of had from 2016 to 2019. But, I mean, I think, you know, 10-9 over the last two years, and, yes, there's qualifiers to a lot of it, the stock does have to drop a little bit. I mean, it's not to the point I would pull the trigger on firing him. I'm not there yet by any stretch of the imagination. But I think your opinion definitely has to be lower than it was November 2019. I I think if you want to fire James Franklin – it is because you have wanted to fire James Franklin for a while. I just mean among the yeah. fan base. I don't I, like. I don't think that Sandy Barber and Eric Barron and whomever else are having a meeting and saying, you know what, we wanted to fire James. We finally have our. No, I think that this is very much a like. Well, this is confirming my prior situation, which is not to say that like, you know, I don't think it's valid to be mad at James Franklin. I think it's very valid to be mad at James yeah. Franklin right now. But like, I, I think if you were in a position where you are sitting here and going, see, this proves it. These last two years prove he's not the man. You're probably willingly ignoring what happened in the years leading up to that. And if you want to ascribe it all to having an excellent offensive coordinator, I got some news about the guy that Penn State has as its offensive coordinator right now. I know the return on investment hasn't been great this year, but I think that's probably for stuff a bit outside of his control. You and I were talking a bit before the podcast, Andrew, about how, like, we don't, it's very easy to sit here. And I think it's a very NFL pro sports brain thing to say, just fire the coach and get somebody else in. If you fire your football coach in college, you are not just firing a coach you are doing the single most radical thing that a football program can do. And I think that is ultimately why I just won't get on board with firing James Franklin because the fallout from doing that in college football is something that is really hard, really hard to bounce back from. 
Yeah. No, it's because like in the NFL, everybody's players are contractually bound to you and they're paid well to be contractually bound to you in college. Now, especially with the transfer portal, you could lose, especially if you do it this early before signing day where people don't have all their scholarships committed out yet, you can lose a good chunk of your team and your signing class and make it, you know, dig yourself in like a three-year hole to bounce out of early signing period is definitely made harder to fire your coach. And so, you know, it, it's a lot bigger consequence decision definitely that is in the NFL or soccer that we both follow where they fire coaches like they, you know, eat candy, but yep. Yeah, it's it's a it's a different decision, and it's a huge financial investment too. Right. Yeah, and it's it's the kind of thing where I think there are a a, a belief that I've seen among Penn State fans is that well things are getting really stale under James Franklin, and I don't totally disagree with that. I think there is a bit of things are stale, things need to be freshened up to some extent. Think you know they're stuck in one gear, they need to get something to kickstart them and get into second gear, third gear, whatever. The thing and the way big way that college football is different from the NFL and from other pro sports is like you mentioned, you can get that kickstart every single year via recruiting. Like I just I it's the thing that I'm struggling with above all else. If you are firing James Franklin because things are going stale, well Guess what's a really good way for things to not be stale? To have your future quarterback, to have your future running back, to have your future wide receiver, to have a future stud on defense coming in. And I think, like, it just seems like a radical solution to a problem that, unless you think this is untenable in Happy Valley, which I don't think too many people are probably at that point, I don't think you can get there. And I think you. The, I, I alluded to it, Andrew. A reason I wanted to bring you on is because you, other than Penn State, your team is Florida. You spent a decent amount of time after school in Texas. You have seen firsthand what happens when a college football program gets reactive to that level. Oh, for sure. And I mean, I think Florida's not in the situation they're in because of firing coaches. But like, we can pivot to FSU really quick and like, so Jimbo Perfect. left in a bad situation as, we're, you know, they were sort of falling from the peak there. They bring in Willie Taggart. They fire him after a year and a half and have like a 15 or $20 million buyout. And so not only does that clean out a lot of your roster, you have to go to all your, your boosters to come up with that money that kicks facility investments down the road. And then now like things under Norvell aren't going well. A lot of those people that wrote you checks to fire the last guy are significantly less willing to write you checks for things to either fire somebody else or build a new building, whatever, for the foreseeable future, I think. And, and so there's, you know, there's consequences to this. And, you know, like bringing up Texas, they've cycled through people numerous times and they're sitting there at what, four and five or four and six coming off a loss to Kansas. And nobody has more money or resources than them or their geography is good as anybody. So, yeah, I mean, it, it it doesn't, you know, there's downside risk to every single one of these moves in a big way. By the way, what was the big thing that Jimbo complained about when he was at Florida State? Oof, I, I, well, the booster structure, I think, was a regular complaint. Uh, Culture the, fell apart the last couple of years. And, and the big thing, if memory serves, the big thing was that Jimbo thought they weren't putting the money into the football program they needed to compete with everybody else. By the way, uh, Jimbo is now at a place where he doesn't even have to ask for things because they know everything he might want. I'm just throwing that out there. Uh, but I've been to Kyle Field twice in the last couple of years. Can confirm it is very, very nice. <laughs> it's a beautiful uh, yeah. facility. And that doesn't even get into the, like if you've ever if you've never had a chance to go see videos of Texas te Texas A and M's like facilities, they will knock you square on your ass. Neither here nor there. But the, a big issue that pops up with firing a football coach is that you risk getting caught in these weird cycles. And Florida and Texas are actually two pretty solid examples of this, where a coach comes in. You know, uh, Charlie Strong was the guy after Mac Brown. Will Muschamp was the guy after Urban Meyer. They come in, they take a, 
they take some years, they get some recruits in. Muschamp had a good year in them. You fire them. The next guy comes in, has success with the last guy's juniors and seniors. By the time his freshmen and sophomores are there and they're not competing, you fire them, bring in the new guy, Dan Mullen, 10 and 3, 10, 11 and 2. Tom Herman, 10 and 4, uh, then had a couple other bowl years in there. Just things got a little bit stale there. You never want to be a program that gets caught in that cycle. And ultimately, my fear with Penn State firing James Franklin or being content with letting him go is that the next guy comes in and he inherits this crazy base of talent. And in two or three years, that crazy base of talent does incredible things. They leave. Penn State has a seven and five, eight and four season. And you're going again. I just think it's best to just sit there and say, all right, just do it with James. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and, and the thing is, too, even going back, it makes it harder for a new coach than when Florida and Texas were going through this is the early signing period. Because mm-hmm. at least before you get hired, usually in December, early December, you had until early February to sort of hold your class together or bring yeah. a couple of your own guys in from your previous school. Now you get hired and sign days in two weeks and you don't have a staff in place almost ever because the university HR is slow and everything else. And it's just a mess. And that class can often be a complete disaster. And, and so it makes that whole like year two and three, when that class would be like a lie, the meat of your two deep to be a complete disaster. And it sets you back in a bigger way. Like, let me look so, at all yeah. class this year with first year under Harson. I think it's a good example was a complete nightmare. I think. Yeah. Oh no, they, they salvaged it. They were 19th. I thought that was worse. Bad example then. But yeah, there's been schools that um, where they bring a new guy in and you have two weeks until most kids are signed and you're kind of screwed that class. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's a conversation that's popped up in the last couple of weeks. I think everyone's projecting out uh, Penn State's going to have a seven and five season. I would be surprised if they finish eight and four. I wouldn't be like blown away, shocked, end of the world. I can't believe this. If they end up beating Michigan State, I think it'll be hard. But like, I think they can possibly do it, especially after Michigan State uh, goes into Columbus as 18-point underdogs this week and plays a game that will be very emotional and they might get their asses kicked. Neither here nor there. Let's end this by asking one last question, Andrew. Do you think this Penn State season has been a failure? Mm, See, it's tough because I think – I probably would have thought they'd have like three losses at this point in the preseason, but I think so a little bit, but I think it's, it's just been compared to what our expectations were at the end of September. Yes. Compared to what they've been at the end of where they were at the end of August, a little bit. That's a good way of putting it. Cause I think I predicted that Penn state was going to lose four games this season. I think I picked Wisconsin, Auburn, Ohio state, and then one of Iowa uh, Michigan or Michigan State. I so kind of by that token, like if Penn State ends the season eight and four, the right where I'm going to be. And one thing I fully believe is that like it's very easy to say a football team is going to go eight and four or seven and five. It's completely different to actually watch them go eight and four or seven and five. Yeah. I, I I absolutely think that you're right though. When you but I here here's the other question I want to I, I want to ask in light of all of that. I don't think you're wrong, but I think that when you add the context of what happened to Sean, Iowa makes sense. Illinois, still a bit inexplicable, but like you can squint and see how it makes sense. And then you're basically looking at losses to two teams that are legitimate playoff contenders. I think when you're looking at it through that lens, and I don't think that I do, it becomes really hard to say this is an out-and-out failure. But I do think you can say, eh, you know, it's a little disappointing where they've, where they've ended up this year. Yeah. yeah, no, I agree with that, for sure. Do, do you think it's the kind of season where after the year you fire a bunch of position coaches, you look for changes somewhere else on the roster, that sort of thing? Or do you think they kind of have to run it back next year? I mean, the only one that I, I – I mean, Ty Howell's in his first year, and so, I mean, I guess you'd like to give a guy more time than that, but, I mean, Franklin moved on from David Corley when things went poorly at receiver after 2018. That that position's been a real letdown, for sure. So, so if I was going to, hmm. like, I, 
I hate seeing the guy out like that, but it's interesting. You know, none of the individual defensive staffers, I think, have been disappointments. Offense, I mean, the running backs have been let down, but you're not firing Sire with as much talent as he brings on campus. Yeah, and I, I and I think we've I think we've gotten into like the running backs are just a bunch of like second bananas asked to play bigger roles. And like, they're, they're the big, that's the thing I was going to say to you. Like, I'm really surprised that you're not saying you, you didn't mention Phil Troutline there. You went right to Ty. Well, I was, I was going to go there, next, but the, the reason why I went Howell over Troutline is Troutline has been recruiting really well. I, I, I don't think, I, I think, I don't think that's wrong by any stretch of the imagination. The one, the one thing that I will say about Troutline is that, and I've said this on pods in the past, he really suffers from the circumstances under which he came in and how radically they changed up once Shiraka ended up getting fired. Like my entire, like my entire thing is that I, if Mike Yersich says fire a guy, I want them to fire a guy. If Mike Yersich doesn't say fire a guy, then you know what? I trust that he's probably the best dude at the position, but I think you're generally right with how Penn State is recruiting at all these various positions and the fact that, like, I just trust Mike Yersis. Just like, I'm putting so much faith in his ability to judge this stuff. I I would not be surprised if they run it unless someone gets a bigger job. I would not be surprised if they run it back next season. Yeah, No, it wouldn't surprise me at all. And, and the other thing, too, is I think just I think the tight ends individually have been more of a regression than the offensive linemen, except for Rasheed Walker. Yeah, I think I, I think that's probably fair. And I think offensive line too. Like you see, like the really good tight end recruits in college football make an impact their first and second years on campus. Offensive line is more of a project, and it takes longer to turn around. Yeah, I I, I think I'd agree with that. I mean, I I I, I actually do remember we uh, I spoke to an Oklahoma State friend before the season, and they did say Mike Yersich has never really been someone who uses his tight end. So through that lens, the fact that they have, you know, 32 combined yards and 360, uh, 32 combined receptions and 367 combined yards for four touchdowns is like a little bit out of the norm for him, I guess. But yeah, like I'm, I, 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 I would like to see more of Theo Johnson doing the stuff that he probably should be doing because I think even, even for getting the production, they just haven't like strange has had some bad drops. I mean, Theo Johnson likes to like knock people out blocking, but he's not consistent with it. Um, you know, it's just been, I just feel like individually there, there's been more disappointment. Maybe that's not fair, but that's just overall take. (laughs) Well, listen, they go out and they beat what they're favored by like 18 over Rutgers. They cover that in the opening. Yeah, well, you know, make, put, bump that up to twenty-one and win by at least that, and I, I suppose I'll be happy. Uh, Andrew, any 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 like final thoughts before I wrap up this episode? Mm, keep the Land Grant Trophy home. <laughs> yeah, man, I don't want to give that up. I love that little thing. It I have one of my there. one of my close friends from home went to Michigan State, and so we have like I don't know if you've seen it, but there's like these old like postage stamps from the day of like when the schools were created. And so it's been sitting in the corner of my desk for two years. I really don't want to mail it to him. Oh, so, so you guys have your own land grant trophy. <laughs> it's a little stupid green postage stamp I got off eBay a couple years ago. Oh, that is awesome. Uh, yes, for, for your sake and for everyone else's sake. I hope, that, <laughs> I hope the land grant trophy uh, does not make its way back to East Lansing. Uh, but just, you know, between you and me and whoever's left, I think Michigan State might really stink next season. But we'll get, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Uh, <laughs> thank you, everyone, for listening to this edition of Royal Lions Radio. As always, make sure you're subscribing wherever you go and get your podcasts. Uh, if you use Apple Podcasts, please go and leave us a five-star review. Keep reading and supporting the site. Best way to do that is to go out and buy some shirts. Make sure you're following us on all the various social media channels. One last time, thank you, everyone, for listening. For Andrew Rubin, I'm Bill DeBoe. Take care, everyone.